Welcome to the podcast. Today, I speak with Ian Cook, head of people analytics at Vizier. Ian has been with Vizier almost 10 years now. Before that, he was doing benchmarking in the HR domain in Canada. Before that, he was in Scotland where he grew up. So in our talk today, he talks about his journey into the people analytics space, what his hopes and aspirations are for the discipline of people analytics in the future, and how we can get insights to people managers as well as individuals so we can make wise decisions on how not only we do work, but how we take care of our humanity, our well-being as we proceed over time. So I hope you enjoy today's discussion and learn more about Ian at Vizier.com or on LinkedIn. And of course, as always, learn about what we're doing with Pafau at Pafau.net. So again, hope you enjoy today's discussion with Ian Cook. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Ian Cook, VP of People Analytics at Vizier. Ian, how are you? I am doing well, thanks, Al. Nice to be here. Hey, it's great seeing you. I am excited for this conversation. I cannot believe we have not done this yet. I mean, you have been in the space for a number of years, and uh, I'm not going to date you. I'll let you do that yourself. But if you would, uh, please introduce yourself and uh, a little bit about you know what you do at the, there at Vizier. Sure. So. Uh... My simple background is I, I got into the people side of business um, through organizational development, consulting and people strategy. And I, when I ran into what I describe as the CFO problem. Uh, lots of great ideas on how do we could do good things for people and help them be successful, help the business be successful. Uh, no capacity to persuade the CFO to actually spend money on it. And, uh, and so that, again, this is back in the late 90s, sort of mid to late 90s. And that, that sort of pushed me into this whole, like, how do we use people data to explain to the business the difference that people make so that we do the right things? Um, and I kind of pursued that as a career journey uh, since the late 90s. Um, and uh, it's taken me through different business iterations and a bunch of consulting work, uh, one a benchmarking business across Canada, and then the last nine years at Vizier. And I joined Vizier specifically because I saw it it filled a gap that was really clear to me at the time about organizations using the information they have inside themselves to understand what's going on in their business. So for Vizier, Vizier is this wonderful combination of you know, extremely intelligent software developers, uh, expert data wranglers, and a whole bunch of domain experts who actually understand the people side of business. We kind of stitch all that together into our product. And so I represent the, the people side of the business. Um, I have become quite well-versed in data through the, the 10 plus years of uh, working in it. Um, and uh, so for Vizier led the growth of the product and I, I focus on product and market strategy right now, which is it's interesting times, interesting space. Hi, yeah, here we are, March, 2022. It is very interesting times as we come out and I'd certainly put that in quotes, come out of the pandemic um, yet, there's a war in Ukraine, which has shocked the system, and we'll touch on that you know, later you know, in terms of disruptions in the world and how it impacts people's strategy, people data, and analytics, certainly. But before we get to topics like that, I want to go back in time and like, you know, if, you know, if I'm correct, and again, I'm sensitive, I'm a North American, I grew up here in California, um, so forgive me, but I do detect an accent. Is that correct? You do, yeah. I, I was uh, 
born and raised in Edinburgh in Scotland, so I, I am <laughs> a, a proud Scot and the British uh, heritage, and uh, moved over to Canada in two thousand and four. And you're probably like looking at me. No, Al, you're the one with the accent. <laughs> Don't be talking to me about accents. But you know, going back, uh, when did you move to to Canada? Uh, you know, what's your educational background? You know, at what point uh, yeah. did that happen? So, so the educational background is quite interesting. Quite a, an interesting story. So, I went to university as was sort of the expectation, and I started doing a physics degree. So, I studied university physics um, up to the first year. But during that phase, I, I realized I quite liked physics, but I didn't really dream in physics. I, I had another friend at university who he could dream in physics. It was quite phenomenal to watch, but I couldn't. So I was like, I like this. I can kind of do it, but I have to work really hard to get there. And this other character just breezed through like half the work and twice the results. It's like So mm -hmm. so it felt like there was a gap for me. So I left. I went, I came over to the States, uh, worked in a bike shop, went traveling, and then went back to university and actually studied politics and philosophy. And what persuaded me to do that was a piece of advice from my uh, studies director. He said, study what you think about at bus stops. And I, I realized through that, like when I when he first said that, said that, I was like, what? Whatever. But then I thought about it more. And I think about how organizations are put together, how people and teams work with each other to try and achieve a goal, either as political systems or as work systems or as performance systems. And I had no idea that that was actually my interest until I kind of dug into the political theory and then you know some of the philosophy that goes with that. So I have a master's in politics and philosophy, which led me into the organizational development space. Um, if I keep walking along the career path, I built my own event business. So entrepreneur kind of at the get-go uh, coming into world of work in the UK when I did there was not a lot of opportunity so I knew some people I had lots of enthusiasm probably not a lot of sense with a friend I built an event management business uh, which did okay um, but was a lot of learning about doing the wrong things um, and then through a couple of steps that got, got through that got led into the consulting world and, and joined a firm to do uh I would the broad category would be team development, leadership development, strategy work, and, and some of the examples of that were um, working with McKinsey and Company to run uh, a, a week-long leadership development program for their individuals as they're starting to choose to get onto partner track, or working with Sony and Company, managing their executive level retreats around how they're going to redesign their business, uh, coaching skills with people like Goldman, J.P. Morgan Chase. So really uh, great learning experiences. All of that led me back to going to do an MBA because I could see what was happening with the people and I understood it really well. I couldn't for the life of me articulate it into business language. And so the MBA was that step back into, I need to, to, to really make a difference with what I'm trying to do. I need to be able to talk in not my language. I need to be able to talk in somebody else's language. So, um, went through and did a, an executive MBA, probably the two hardest years of my life, working 50 hours a week and studying another 50. So, uh. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Well, you obviously created a breadth of experiences that focused you and created the basis for what you do now. Because I, I see... And having known you for a number of years now, I probably, if not the whole nine, then close to 
the whole nine at, at Vizier. It's the case where you have a unique narrative around how the data and the analytics actually impact individual team and organizational behavior. And that connective tissue, that narrative is extremely important. I don't have to tell you that because there's some who come in from a tech or data perspective. There's others who come in from an IO psychology or you know, psych perspective and or OD perspective. And, you know, connecting those two disciplines obviously is not easy. So, you know, my question, so are you now in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, when you're now doing this coaching and OD stuff and you finished your exec uh, MBA? Just transitioning into the early two thousands. So my, okay. my, my MBA was, it was, it was quite an interesting experience in doing it. The MBA, the the study director I had as that program taught the finance piece of the business. And verbatim, he said to me one day, like, what do you know? You're in HR. And I was like, it was quite interesting, his perspective on, you know, the people side of business. It, it turned out not to be true. And he was quite surprised at some of the results I got in the blind marked test. He was like, oh, that's your mark? He's like, that's my mark. So he was not correct, but if that perception is reality. So through that engagement, um, we went, I went on to do an ROI study as part of the, the sort of the end state. So actually looking at certain of the interventions that we'd done inside a couple of our banking clients and tracking it all the way from like, why did we do it? Who did we do it to? What were the outcomes for those individuals? What for the groups that we didn't touch, what were the outcomes for those? And, and can we get to a dollar and cents uh, end state with this piece of people work? And it was, you know, it was at the time where ROI was this big thing and, you know, the I think the Jack Jack and Patty Phillips were sort of kicking off that extension to the Kirkpatrick model. Um, so we I did the full on like all the way to the bottom ROI study and realized just how hard and arbitrary it is to try and put this stuff into dollars. But the business impact and business impact that a enlightened business leader will trust is a lot easier. Um, so you know, there is this, the business component, there's the social science component, and then there's a data component all kind yep. of stitched together. Uh, back in yeah, as, you, as you're sharing that story, I'm just thinking about how far we've come in the discipline, because you're absolutely right. Uh, when I was in the early 2000s at Gap, uh, I had effectively sold a project uh, that linked employee satisfaction or engagement with customer satisfaction and in turn downstream outcomes. And that mirrored what was done at Sears in the mid to late nineties with the Sears service profit chain that was featured in HBR in February of 98. So I'm geeking out a little bit, but the reason I'm coming, the reason I share all that is uh, to ask this question and make this observation first is that it was for a long time all about that downstream outcome, namely the financial outcome. And here we are in 2022 with the pandemic where well-being is in and of itself an outcome that's desired um, and bridge the gap over the past or the 15, almost 20 years since the early 2000s where this work was, you know, kind of the focus we've had other what I would call intermediary variables take focus. And so kind of that chain has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, that causal chain that, you know, there's more data within that, within that chain. 
Would you agree with that? And, you know, if so, I imagine that's one reason you're now do what you do is that there's more data to analyze these dynamics from leader decisions to these downstream outcomes. Yeah, totally. I think oh, it's a, I, I love the question. Al. It's a, it's a fantastic question. <laughs> so I think in the intervening 20 years, I would say three things have happened. Uh, first of all, that understanding of how people impact the business kind of went from, you know, 0.11% of the working population to, to 1%, to 2%, to 5%, to, you know, maybe we're at 20% now. Like the, the awareness and the ability to see that if you don't consider the people in your business, your merger fails. You don't actually pivot your business. Like all of these outcomes that people want suddenly when somebody works with their brain and how much they invest their brain in your business makes a difference between you winning and losing, then more and more people wake up to, oh, okay, there's something people aren't plug and play. They take care. The second is in the digitization of, of work, which, you know, a lot of it is just the transactional systems. But when I was going to do the ROI study, like I'm walking around, I'm meeting people, I'm recording things in spreadsheets, like is a entirely manual data collection effort with an entirely, you know, human interface to make that happen. And, and, I, and I'm getting funny looks from people going like, you're doing this for what? So you, you're breaking down the boundaries. You know, again, in the intervening 20 years, you can now read sentiment from a whole bunch of different ways. Um, you could machine read it out of commentary that employees put into cases about serving clients. It's like, you know, this client is frustrated because duh, 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 duh. you machine read that case management set. You can pick up the negative sentiment. You can identify the item or items that are associated with the negative sentiment. You don't have to survey them. The, the, the technology and our capacity to process it Horsepower being one thing, but like understanding of extracting insight being a second thing has just ramped way up. Like we always knew it was there, but it was somebody like me reading 2000 entries and hand coding to, to get the insight. Like you just can't do that at scale. Now you plug it in, machine does a job and then you get to, to work on top. So all of that's moved forward. And then the, the other piece is the sort of the, 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 then transition in um, in value set where it, it we there's this cycle between I am a customer and an employee and a stakeholder and a voter like this this notion of there is business and there is people is just it's been completely blown apart. So yeah. I think that coalescing of understanding the multiple hats people wear and that the the the, the pain or the downsides or the challenges that come, whether they are financial or just even risk-based, when you don't consider the person, um, are they just so much more understood that there is, there is, I don't think we've solved the problem, but the appetite and capacity to solve the problem is just, it's a, it's a quantum step. It's not until you ask me the question, do I realize just how far we've traveled? Oh God, it, it's incredible, isn't it? And, you know, this is a reality that leaders must acknowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, in that they didn't grow up with this, 
level of data or analytical horsepower. And it's incumbent upon them to remain educated on it and make you know appropriate decisions. So that's something I want to get to around ethics. I want to talk about the people cloud and, and all that stuff. And there's a host of questions that came out in, in what you just shared. But I want to actually go back because as you were talking, it dawned on me that you have uh, a very clear way, not only of explaining your thoughts and ideas on this topic, but also what I would call systematic thinking, you know, AKA connecting the dots. And you mentioned physics uh, before, which, you know, there's a bunch of causal interactions in, in, in physics and in chemistry. So, you know, this importance of systematic thinking, if you agree, you know, Number one, where did it come from for you? You know, is it something that it was an educational experience? Is it something that you know, it happened at the bus stop or was it something in, in grade school or, or, or what have you? And if you view it as important and a muscle that can be improved upon, w would you invite leaders and others to you know, challenge themselves to think more systematically? Yeah, so the, the systems piece, I think, has come through education. So... Mm -hmm. um, I've always, again, always fascinated about why did this team work? Why didn't this team work? Like some fairly early on experiences playing sports. You know, I'm a, a, a mountaineer, so, you know, adventuring with people in the backcountry. The teams that don't work, it, it it's painful. You see it. The teams that work, you kind of go like, oh, my God, how, why, why is this happening? So that was just a fascination. And so I just kept probing away at that question, like, why, 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 why? Um, that led me to books like The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge, which is instrumental in most people I know who, who talk about oh, systems thinking. <laughs> yeah. and, and I feel like, and then um, there's another book, it's called Images of Organization, and it, it actually describes, you know, your mental model of an organization actually drives an awful lot of your assumptions, which drives your actions, which can actually have cause harm. And so it's a really instructive book for going through different models. So lots of people think of an organization as an engine. Like I've got a carburetor, I've got well, a battery these days, but I've got something else. And you literally just plug and play. Like, oh, this one's broken. I take it out and put in another one. But when you apply that mental model to an organization and you think about the carburetor as a person, like it's really clear. We've all had the experience. Like taking out this person and plugging in another person is not the same. Like it's entirely not the same. It may be better, it may be worse, it may be neutral in terms of performance, but it's not the same. And so it was like probing into, well, what is it about that reality that makes it not the same that then just kept me pursuing this? So if it is a system and it's an ecosystem and there's things that are influenceable and things that aren't influenceable, like how do you intervene in a system in a way that it doesn't just spit you out, like that it doesn't just crash, that doesn't damage the system again if you start to look at ecosystem interventions there's some really bad history out there in the planet there's some good history and there's some really bad history so you know tread carefully um so it became a really useful model well i absolutely love it and so i have three questions and i'm gonna have to choose one so here here we go is this notion of um an ecosystem and thinking about the images of an organization and having our biases yeah all is critically important it, it also has been the legacy thinking for lack of a better term that hey if that individual or group isn't working out just fire them and hire somebody else yeah. and th there's an implication that if you rehire someone then 
or rehire, I'm sorry, if you hire somebody else, replace somebody that that person just automatically is going to do better. And I was inspired by Herman Miller's book, The Art of Leadership, I believe, when he said, well, if someone makes a mistake and doesn't do something right, hey, you know, why am I going to just let them go? Because I'm letting go of all this learning that just took place. So my question to you is, yeah, how much do you believe, you mentioned 20% earlier of leaders who kind of get the human element and how people, not just butts and seats, but human beings actually have a unique contribution, both individually and collectively to the output of an organization. Yeah, do you think that is accelerating in terms of an understanding and appreciation or is that kind of stuck? So it's definitely accelerating in terms of an appreciation, um, a, a clear signal, uh, this, this week, last week, what day is it? Anyway, I think it was last week. Um, Apple shareholders. So these are invest investment organizations. These are institutional investors who take their money and, and either to build a, a pension group or in order to pay back their shareholders, they're investing in Apple. They voted for Apple to do a civil rights audit. And so like, we want you to look at all of your practices and how you deal with people and tell us that you're meeting your commitments. So civil rights audit, it's not a cheap thing to do. Uh, but this was a, a, a body that would, in the past, is like, we don't care how you, be, you treat people just so long as you keep making money. I can tell my shareholders I've made a good choice in terms of the shares that I've bought and we are paying them back because we're invested in Apple. So Apple actually made a recommendation against doing the audit. They said, you know what, we've got it. We think our practices are fine. And, and it's likely that they are. Like, I, I think Apple's a well-run company. So this isn't about Apple being good or bad. This mm -hmm. is about a group of people with a clear financial interest in the success of Apple making a choice to look at the people aspects of their practice. Wow. It was, I mean, it's unprecedented. I don't think it's happened before. Wow. Um, and so, you know, is that your 20%? Does that mean it's like everybody like, no, these are, these are the black swan events that lead to change. They aren't now everybody's doing it, but once one group has done it, once it's in the press, those are the things that start to sow a seed and start to, you know, then actually shift practice. So that's a long way away from where we were. A long way. It, it is a long way. And obviously a lot of has happened to inspire, you know, such change. And it just dawned on me because uh, I, having lived uh, overseas for more than five years, uh, which relative to use a drop in the bucket, um, I just want to ask this question building off what you just shared. Uh, you in all likelihood have a unique perspective on inclusive behaviors, uh, particularly given your travels and you having you know, put roots in a quote unquote foreign land. Uh, and inclusion from an organizational perspective has been an extremely you know, high priority and rightly so. So, you know, taking off the social justice um, story that you just shared, you know, where do you think we are, you know, with inclusion and how does your experience as a young person and as a professional over the years, how has your experience influenced your feelings and ideas on that topic? Yeah. So, so we, and I say we, a long way to go in terms of inclusion, but I also think we've come a long way. If I 
if I look at the workplace that my father worked in compared to the workplace that I work in, I have I have I personally have a lot more permission to be myself, and I work with a wonderful range of people who are fully themselves at work on a daily basis. Vizier is not every workplace, but I see more and more of those. I see certain sectors, certain industries, certain geographies where that, like, you know, come as you are and, and it's not okay to question it is, uh, is open. So uh, I think we've come a long way. I always like to celebrate that, but I'm certainly committed to not changing that. And then funnily enough, coming to Canada was this really bizarre experience where I was looking to get into work. So again, if, if I position my, my experience, I am a multinational consultant who has worked with McKinsey, Sony, Goldman Sachs, all these people. I have done it globally. I've worked in Canada. I've worked in Europe. I've worked everywhere. I would sit down with these professions. They said, well, that's very interesting, Ian, but what have you done in Canada? And, and I, I had to, I had to take a really deep breath not to not to just kind of like why what what's behind the question and their mental models like well you haven't done any of this in canada so you can't possibly be successful in canada and i found the mental model insulting it's like what is it that you aren't seeing about the rest of the world that means you can't position my experience relative to the experience that you actually need like it was it felt like a very blinker view so you know personally when I got into Canada, I worked a lot with the supporting access to work for people who came from outside of Canada, like explaining my journey, uh, working voluntarily and, and various different boards to, to try and build a more inclusive work culture. Because the, the funny thing is like the data says immigrants are actually your best source of talent. They are self-motivated. They are resilient. They have an unbelievable drive to succeed of anybody with a predisposition to really, you know, make stuff happen it's somebody who's moved country yeah. so it's like how can people not see this it just blew my mind that people couldn't understand or see it so so yes we've come a long way al but yes there is there is so much on inclusion that is not necessarily just what we see it's what we perceive and the values we bring and and the, the assumptions that trap us that i would be uh it's, we're not even close to done yet. We have a lot more work to do. So I don't know if that's a long answer, but that's how I see it. No, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful answer. And you know, you're absolutely right. Of course, you know, it's your experience. Uh, I also see commonalities, not only in my own experience, but what I'm hearing you know, time and time again is that our language uh, is not uh, mature. It's not in line with our intentions yet. In other words, we're not, sometimes asking the right questions. What have you done in Canada? It's likely not appropriate. What, what is your goal? You know, what are you trying to achieve to your, to your point? It, and I, so just a yeah, quick one on that, I, yeah. I, I, I would try and pivot the question, go, can I answer a different question, which is like, how do my experiences align to helping me make me successful in Canada? I'd happily answer that question for you. So mm. I, after the first two shocking moments, I would actually take the question and try and return it back and say, I think this is what you're asking me. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I am. <laughs> of course, I, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> yeah, and actually, that's a build up to my question, because as we acknowledged before, and I don't mean this as a criticism. So if our listeners are people analytics leaders or CHROs, heads of talent or people just interested in the future of work, 
they're probably okay. Th this is you know interesting. Um, however, if they reflect on their experience, even if there are people analytics leader, even if they've been in this discipline close to twenty years, you don't have the aperture. You don't have the ability to see everything that's going on, and you you might not know what questions to ask, particularly if you're you know CHRO. You came up as a HR generalist, so I think correct me if I'm wrong, I'd be interested in your take on this. Part of the skill of becoming a people analyst leader is knowing what questions to ask, not only of the organization in terms of the behaviors that you want and so forth, but the data, the systems, the interoperability, which I know you have you know, narrative on as well. So questions to ask, is it, do you feel that to be true that there's a lot of room to improve across disciplines? 100%. I, I love the way you frame it, Al. And something that we've noticed a lot, sort of the, what distinguishes a people analytics practitioner from just, say, somebody who's um, reporting out the data, I would say it's curiosity. Hmm. And if you, if you train yourself in curiosity, you train yourself in asking questions and you train yourself in asking question chains. So I don't think it's just the question. It's the it's the first question and the second question and the third question that that mm. chain that really starts to unpack like so what would it look like if um and <laughs> as many a consultant also knows you you can look a lot smarter asking good questions than you can be trying to answer them. so you know somewhat of a survival habit but i, I would rather invest in somebody who's really good at, at listening to an answer and digging into the question underneath than somebody who thinks they know it all i i personally caught concerned about those who think they have the answer I, I feel like they just haven't pushed hard enough you can have a current answer but not a final answer well let's toggle a bit because i want to uh if you're open to it talk about vizier and first off the inspiration for you to join you know nine plus years ago and you know to go into where we are now because you know again i'm going to Pat, you personally on the back, as well as, you know, Dave Weisbach and uh, John and Jan Schwartz and the, you know, whole team there. I, I probably shouldn't start naming names because then I'm just going to be here for, you know, a long time, as I'm sure you would be. It's quite a few names for sure. Yeah, quite a few names have contributed all the years. But what I will call out is that I perceived you all as a learning organization, as an agile organization to respond to the needs of uh, a business and and a space, and I can tell my own story on that, you know, at some other time. But if we go back to the reason you joined Vizier initially, you know, first off, when was that, and you know, what inspired you to make the jump? Yeah, so uh, it was it was nine years ago, last February, um, to be exact, and what inspired me to make the jump? So I I built a benchmarking business, so. Um, and the employer I was with, we I'd, I'd done a entrepreneurship, so it was a net new business for that that business, and we were taking data from a series of clients across Canada on a quarterly basis. We were running it through um, our home built benchmarking technology and providing reports back, and it was across a range of things. So here is the number of HR staff you have to employees. Here's your revenue per FTE. Here's your turnover rate. Here's your absence rate. And we were learning some interesting stuff at the macro level. We actually did this interesting study about does having more HR people help? Does having less HR people help? Uh, and the answer is it's a bit like um, uh, uh, the porridge, the 
just the right amount. You don't need too few. You don't need too many. You end up there's this, this optimal range. So so that was really interesting. But every single one of my clients in that perspective was coming back to me. It's like we like this external perspective, Ian. But my biggest trouble is doing stuff with what's inside my business. I can't see what's going on. I can't process it. I can't access it. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what it means. So every single one of them had that problem. And then I'd been having coffee with Dave literally since the business, since he joined the business, just because there's a Vancouver network. Vancouver is a bit of a pond when it comes to business, but it's full of very like great characters and entrepreneurial spirit. So it's, it's a fun place to be. And, and he just started sharing, um, you know, the founding story of Vizier was a bunch of uh, technologists with a really deep understanding of, of the BI space and like how that, how that data to insight cycle was working. And going out and asking their clients, the IT group, you know, what do you think? And IT saying, oh, it's great. It's, you know, it's really good. We really like the tooling. And then going to the business and saying, well, what do you think? And the business having the opposite reactions, like, yeah, I get all this stuff. I can never find what I need. Anytime I want something changed, I have to wait. I can never ask the follow-up question. So you know, they conceived of the technology layer of Vizier as a solution to serving the business user. And then I was the business user. I was like, this sounds like an amazing opportunity to invest all of the stuff I've been learning into making a product and then keep learning and be in this virtuous cycle. Because again, I mean, you know a bunch of our customers, Al, but I will be the first person to say our customers have been um, unimaginably helpful, supportive, and kind of key in actually driving this whole virtuous cycle that we sit inside. So it was really just the opportunity to do something entrepreneurial, because I've always had that spark, grow something distinctive that I was convinced was the way HR should be run. This isn't people analytics and when we do HR and those things are separate. I've never seen them as separate. Like people analytics is how you inform the business to do the right things. You don't do things and then measure if they work, that's backwards. You measure what's working, you measure what's not working, you then design interventions to improve it. So people analytics has always been the strategic engine for me in terms of how you should run the people side of business. Vizier was, it looked like a decent vehicle Smart people, good tech, savvy investors. Seemed like it was a fertile ground for me to invest that part of my career and my knowledge in in doing something product-wise. Well, yeah, I will say I sense you made a good decision. <laughs> you made a good decision. You have nine laps to think to you know you're to evidence that you're voting with your feet and you're well, I, you keep coming back. I, I can share a data point on that because I think it is quite telling. Like the. I think I've worked for somewhere between 11 and 12 employers through my career. My longest tenure prior to Vizier was five years. And my longest, that was one. And my longest tenure prior to that was three. So nine years at Vizier is unprecedented. It kind of speaks for itself in terms of, you know, the alignment, the excitement, the opportunity to growth. And we're just, we just continue to keep hitting opportunities to grow it. It's, um, it's fantastic. You know, I'll just, uh, for those listeners, just for historical context, I, you know, Vizier came on the scene, uh, you know, I'm probably 10 plus years into the discipline, and I don't remember how it first came to my knowledge, but I do know we were taking our peer group up to Seattle, and we're going to uh, have an event at Starbucks, and uh, the week before, 
uh, and Dave Weisbeck was going to come speak. And so the week before, uh, uh, Paul Pressler, no, I'm sorry, uh, Paul Starbucks, Paul, <laughs> Paul Presser, the CEO. Who's the uh, CEO at um, Starbucks? Uh, I don't know. Not, I don't remember not the name. A party. Sorry, <laughs> not a party. I, 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 I'm, I'm uh, sorry, I messed that one up. But anyway, he called an all hands meeting, so had to move from Starbucks. And um, I called a friend, and he said, "Well, you can't use our space." He was the CEO uh, of a company there in Seattle, and he said, "Can't use our space, but you can use our lawyer space." Um, and I'm like that. Really? <laughs> yeah. And so I called up this uh, law firm and, and I said, well, it's on you know, the 26th floor. I'm almost positive it was on the 26th floor. And I arrived and it was one of the most gorgeous office spaces that I've ever seen. It had uh, the ceilings, you know, it was, were two floors. The monitor in 2012 was uh, 20, 30 feet across. It was just a, a view of Puget Sound. Anyway, Dave came in and he like he has thirty customers in front of him in this gorgeous office space. So, how to become you know friends with somebody is you give them thirty prospects in a room in a beautiful building. By the way, that law firm was KNL Gates, and I was like, hey, whatever KNL Gates, KNL Gates. I go, oh, Gates, Gates, Gates. <laughs> Gates. So yeah, it's Bill Gates' father's uh, law law firm. So anyway, Dave came in and hit it out of the park, and, and I was like, okay, you know, Vizier is going to be a real deal, particularly understanding um, Dave's you know background and not only passion for the space, but he quote unquote got it, and that was a consensus of the people in the room. So you know, coming back to you in terms of like Vizier getting it, you getting it, asking questions, involving your customers and exploration, you now as a firm have launched the People Cloud. Yep. Now, tell us about that. What, what, what is that? In, it, in its simplest form, the People Cloud is how you understand the impact of people on the business and the impact of the business on people. It's a, it's a step. And it's a, it's a step we've taken because people analytics seems to have become overloaded, overcrowded, overused, and therefore confusing and unhelpful as a language. It's, it's common when things become, um, you know, of the moment, but a lot of things that are getting positioned as people analytics, we kind of go, well, yeah, it's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not everything you need. And so for us, the, the step into the people cloud, it's the next evolution. Uh, and it has kind of three core components. The first is what you'd expect, business and people data together. So what if you're running a development team, what is it that means you get your story points delivered on time? Is it the mix of people that you've got? Is it the uh, combinations of skills that they bring? Is it the um, ability to work across remote, not remote? Is it the you know the person who's managing the team? Like a whole bunch of questions around how do we get story points or, or calls or whatever shipped. The second piece is translating that down to the people who are making the decisions. Again, a lot of people, and like, you'll know this, a lot, of, a lot of people like started as research projects where this genius insight was developed by three individuals and it got no further. It's like, nice, not compelling. So the second piece of the people cloud, we would call it personalization. You know, we take the data we take the piece that is meaningful to the decision maker, we, we deliver it to them shaped already for consumption. 
So it's way beyond a dashboard. A dashboard is this, you know, it's like a dashboard is like a scoreboard in a hockey game. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a big general view of what just happens. Like, well, if you're watching the game, you kind of know what's happening. Whereas this is actually parceling up like this is, it's about your team and it's about your team for this period of time. And it's about something that's material to your business, you know, be it an incapacity to ship because you don't have enough people or about a risk of a key person exit, which is going to, um, you know, challenge you to to deliver all of that what becomes what makes that possible is what i call context and that's the, the sitting on external data about the labor market about what's going on inside other competitive businesses so that you know what good looks like often the hardest thing with people data is the well the 07 recession is a good example or prior to the 07 recession is a good example our current frame would be another good example as the labor market tightens, so too resignation rate goes up. If you're just measuring resignation rate, you're like, oh no, our resignation rate is going up. It must be bad. Up, up and to the right is bad, right? Well, not if you're going up slower than the market. If you are 5 to 10% slower than the market, that's success. That's a result. That mm -hmm. should be celebrated. And so if you don't have that external context, you have no idea what good is. And so for us, the people cloud is, is all of those three things built together delivered so that you are using and acting on the data, not so that you're spending all your time trying to find it, shape it, work out what it means, and then get that to the, the person making the decision. That whole um, concierge-based process is too slow um, for the speed at which business is working. So for us, you know, you, you, that it's an extension on top of everything we've learned about people analytics, is this like, how do you deliver the right answer to the right person at the right time? Um, yeah. And that's what that's it, what we encapsulate as the as Vizier's people cloud. It's there's it a lot of moving pieces all working in harmony. <laughs> you know, as you shared that, I'm just thinking. Well, an organization enterprise wouldn't do that themselves. It's not their competitive advantage. They would have to hire a bunch of people. They would have to you know, train them up. They'd have to empower them with adequate resources, tools, all, all, all that stuff and pay them. So you know, what is your value proposition? Why effectively enlist a vendor to help do all that work? So three, three primary reasons. Um, speed to value. You and I know, having watched the space for years, that you don't you don't have time to sit around and think about this and work out how to build it. Like I, I read a post, and I won't name the individual, but in the post, and this was probably okay at the time, but the post said, "Oh well, you know, we didn't actually do very much for the first twenty four months." I was like, "What?" <laughs> you know, the the advice was like, you know hang out, work out the tools you've got, work out your data sources, kind of do some stuff because once you've learned all that, then you can start to deliver insight. Like, you know, fair enough. If you have permission, awesome. But I'm like, yeah. I, I don't think I can sit here and say, hire somebody and wait 24 months before they show value. I just, just like, I don't, well, I don't live in that world. If others do, good on them. Um, so, so it's the speed to value. It's like, Nobody would think about building their own HRIS system. Nobody thinks about building their own, um, you know, engagement system. So why people continue to persist this notion that this whole value chain of data is something that we should build ourselves, 
I, 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 for one, I'm still, I'm struggling to understand that. You know, we, we see the difference between the two. Um, the other is there's a whole bunch of uh, specialty knowledge, which is scarce. So speed to value is one. I would say knowledge scarcity is number two. We've seen, I know I've lost track of the number of people analytics leader leaders that have shifted this year. I think it's going on for a hundred percent. It's not quite, but it's, it's just, you know, it's a nip and tuck on, on that scale. And, and the reason they're shifting is because there's just not that many of them that have been there, done that, get it, can execute with, um, you know, stability and security. So if you're not, the person who's prepared to hire the superstar, like how'd you get, how'd you get going when there isn't the, the talent? And and then the sort of two or three other pieces are sort of the innovation and the data. If, if you are going to, if you trust the notion that good is performance relative to the market, where are you getting your market data? How are you going to shape that? How'd you pull that in? Like you can't do that yourself. It doesn't exist. Um, you certainly don't want to build the scraping system with all the liabilities that go with that to do it yourself. Whilst it's technically possible, it may not be the most ethical approach to, um, you know, assembling the insight. Um, and so as a, again, as a sole organization, why would you want to enter into that? So there's just, there's things that we can do because of our scale, because of how we design things, because of our conceptual approach to solving this problem, which was business first that you just can't build yourself and that, that we see okay, people will argue with this, but you know, that's a fun debate are absolutely essential to doing this. Well, not necessarily at first base, but certainly by the time you get to second or third base. And so, you know, that is, that is sort of the, why we go, why would you build this yourself? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because many just don't know what's possible yeah. right now. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, that's incumbent upon both you and me to make the world aware of what's possible. But do you feel that, I mean, it's a two-way street insofar as it's incumbent upon us who's close to the work to evangelize the value of the work, but it's also incumbent upon a leader, whether it be a CHRO or someone in the business, even CEO, to understand if they really want to know what's happening in an organization or talent markets or you know trends and so forth, that there are investments that they not only can make, but need to make in order to manage the system for which they are responsible. Would you, you know, agree with that, particularly that latter part? 100 percent and you know often we'll approach conversations with certainly with it um and more often with you know vp or c-level executives within hr it's like don't see this as a sales pitch see this as educating yourself on the art of the possible because what you think is possible and what you will hear from one group versus another group is really different and all we need you to do all we recommend you do is have a good understanding of the depth of the what is actually possible based on proof, not 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 this. This isn't the sales talk, Jack. This is the you know go and look at what our customers are doing type stuff. Mm. Um, and it, it's also the flip side is that that's not just because it's a good thing to do. It's, it's necessary. Like the SEC regulations that got changed in twenty twenty, um, they're getting traction. They're getting focus. They're getting people to push to tightening them. Apple shareholders are kind of going, you know, what if Apple 
instead of having the shareholders say, you need to do a civil rights audit, already had the data. It kind of mm -hmm. already had the transparency, already had it done and dusted and said, here's the, the math and evidence behind our policy that we have been working on. It's gone. And, and believe me, I think the investment in having that up front is less than trying to retroactively do it in a hurry to, to appease your shareholders. So it's it's not just you should be uh, advised. It's, I mean, for me, a leader's job is to understand the opportunities and risks that will push their business forward or get in their business's way. This is, in, in my mind, it is the biggest opportunity and risk that is untapped on the people side of business. So if you aren't digging in and understanding here, I, I, I'm not sure what you're paying attention to. Yeah, I'm going to have to get off my uh, rear end here and look, follow up on an analysis that, or a hypothesis rather, that I put forth at the beginning of the pandemic, which until this moment, I actually forgot I had done. And it was this, it was anecdotal, um, but it was based on uh, the information, uh, again, anecdotal, uh, from the Insight 222 membership is that we saw a very clear, uh, and again, I'm going to say for the third time anecdotally, uh, that those who had more mature people analytics functions were outperforming those that were handling the pandemic and the associated crises better than those that did not. And, and I would venture that to be true over the past two years. And I certainly believe it to be true moving forward. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I probably got some uh, directional data as opposed to anecdote on that. So we've been studying, you know, Lexi's been studying people analytics maturity for, uh, we've now got time series over two groups, I think it was 2017 and then 2021. In each of those studies, uh, along with a uh, professor, Janet Marler, she's looked at the combination of people on X practices and compared that back to return on equity so or return on assets so some publicly available benchmarks of performance so each time we've looked at that those with higher levels of people on X practice have higher levels of financial performance we, we were never able to show that, the, that there's a correlation but you know is it if you have more money you can afford a people on X practice or if you have a people on X practice do you make more money we recently did the, the, the time series where we looked at group at time A and then group at time B, and it's the same group and it's the same study. And so we found a 0.66 correlation that doing more people, Alex, pushed your results up. So yeah. we're starting to get the evidence that an investment in people, Alex, is, is the path by which your HR practices get better which is the path by which your people do better, which is the path by which your business does better. And, it, and it's always difficult because it's this cycle of, of chains. Everybody wants the line, like, spend here, get that. Like, you know, it would be wonderful if the world was that simple, there would be no problems in business to solve anymore because they were all linear and logical. That's, that's not how business works. So there's this chain. But we're starting to build the body of evidence that suggests investments in people, Alex, are what bring about superior practice in your business, which then brings about the opportunity for superior performance. You know, the performance thing is always driven by market forces. You could be an excellent organization in a really bad market. That's that's mm -hmm. that. But if you're you're still going to do better than a rubbish organization in a bad market. So you know, why wouldn't you try and be excellent? Is kind of um, 
a piece of that. So we're starting to see those answers um, and we'll keep pushing. And we'll keep pushing is right. Cause one thing that going back to 2014, we showed that um, those with quote unquote mature, mature subjective, um, but there are some criteria that uh, we identified as mature across what I would call the, the analytics uh, maturity progression is that those uh, who are analyst competitors in this model, the leaders in which they served, the decision-making was actually with elevated confidence. So that was the construct we were trying to measure, yes. confidence, yeah. leader, leader decision-making. Yeah. And so, you know, I imagine that's even more true these days because there's better insight, again, not only about what's happening in an organization, but to your earlier point with the people cloud relative to other organizations and, you know, what's happening in the external market. And, and that's what's driven us down the people cloud development path. The, the work that Lexi did back in 2017 highlighted that the more different populations that access the data, the more value. So we have measurement criteria mm -hmm. around maturity. One of the criteria is the the pure volume of people and then categorized by, are they you know, business unit leaders? Are they frontline leaders? Are they HR business partners? So the broader the spread of consumption of insight, the more different data sources are put in, the higher the maturity, the higher the impact. So it, you know, aligning with what you're saying, Al, it, it is that uh, decision confidence. And it's, it's why we've invested a lot in that um, personalization track. Because we know a single dashboard to 100 managers is really different than a personalized dashboard to 100 managers. That's that's a one-to-many versus a one-to-one. -one. And and again, like for us to get the kind of impact out of people data that we know it can bring, we need to be able to do that one-to-one -one at scale. And that's where we are yeah. with the people cloud. That's that's literally what we can do. Um, and that's driven out of the research. That's this whole virtuous cycle of like we we built it, we run it, we studied it, we improved it, we built it, we run it, we studied it, we improved it. And and. If I say, correct me if I'm wrong again, I'm going to kick myself, but, but this is what I hear you saying. And we realize this in the re reality of remote work and that everything is just a click away and you removing yourself from a dashboard or something similar report is also a click away. So if that's, if there's uh, a dashboard, for example, that I have to click down to get the information, you know, I, the, my propensity to do that diminishes with each and every click. And what I'm hearing is you're minimizing the clicks to value, <laughs> the, the time to value. Is that right? There's the clicks to value, and then there's the, the actual decision cycle. So lots of people are going to go, well, I don't need to do this because my managers can get the data they need already. But what they mean is there is a spreadsheet with a bunch of rows and columns that is available to whoever chooses to look at it. What that succumbs to is, I mean, very simply subjective bias because every manager picks up that data, looks at it, makes their own judgment, runs their own math, brings their own perspective on what their business is about and decides on a direction to go. And so it, 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 it's, this is why I sort of link back to HR strategy and, and the need for something like Busier's People Cloud is if you're actually trying to make HR strategy happen, the worst thing to do is give people unstructured information and, and have them interpret and make up their own mind and go and act on it. Because then you've got literally, you know, as many different interpretations and possible downstream decisions as you do have people accessing the data. And, and this is something that I think people, it's really easy to say, oh, job done. They've got the spreadsheet, check. But 
how much is being undone because the interpretation on the spreadsheet, the what it means and why it means that is left to chance is somewhat stunning in my mind. Like finance wouldn't let that happen. Yeah. And to emphasize the point, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, is that if I look at the history of data visualization and you know, Edward Tufte's work in, well, for a generation, but certainly you know, at the advancement of the internet, he was like the, the person who really created the user experience or was looked upon you know for guidance on you know where the energy goes on on a screen and, and click through and then you know, we have um, you know, a bunch of thought leaders and others putting together books and what have some fantastic there's no criticism here but really how to create charts and graphs and and, and so forth so it, it can be consumed and understood but even then you know, do we want managers and others creating charts and graphs? You know, can we just embed that knowledge in a tool so they can actually focus on making good decisions? Is that part of your value proposition? It's totally a part of the value proposition. And there's a stage after that as well. So if, if I think about a lot of what Tufti highlighted, it's like, how do you properly represent data in a way that's informative? There's a whole next step after that was like, how do you shape that data so that it guides decision? Mm -hmm. And so it's 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 not only through the visualization to make a clean, informative decision, it's actually to um, simplify and guide within the visualization so you see good, bad, right, wrong. So one of our, I'll use an example. One of our visualizations is a simple quadrant, you know, metric on the bottom axis, metric on the top axis, and then you can color code which quadrants. So if if high, high, so high on one axis and high on the other axis, that means I've got a lot of events happening for a really expensive population. That's a bad quadrant. We make it red. Like So I don't have to go through that whole mental load of like high, high. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's there. Right. I got it. So like, you know, there's the pure visualization world, but then there's like, well, what does it mean to the consumer? And if you can layer in what it means to the consumer into the visual and have that displayed, knowing the consumer's decision pattern, that's where you, that's, that's where you get adoption. That's where you get decision. That's where you get speed to action. Uh, and, and that's yeah. what, again, we've, you know, we've been visualizing for decades. We're into the process of actually structuring the decision space. So we're not making the decision. We're not into the, oh, we'll tell you what to do. I'm not a great fan of that in the people space. There's too many options. But you, if you narrow the decision space and, and focus the options, then you start to orchestrate action. Uh, and that's where, that's where we're at. That's the kind of the exciting piece of where our technology has got to. Well, thank you for, I think your uh, explanation there was beautiful. And I just want to call out a, a distinction there that it just, went quickly is you go back five, 10 years ago, prescriptive analytics was, oh, we got to get to from predictive to prescriptive. And I was one of the few just cringing going, no, no, if that, you because now we cannot have data or machines or these algorithms making decisions. In some cases, it's appropriate, particularly if it's a closed system that's very tight and it's not affecting human beings, which in and of themselves are dynamic and need to be appreciated for their uniqueness. So what I hear, heard you say, just to call out, it's not 
prescriptive, but it's creating the basis by which to make informed decisions at speed, at scale, with this level of uh, personalization that you were speaking. Totally. Is, is that accurate? That is really accurate. And again, I'm going to give props to um, uh, Kemi and Shahar at Snap for sort of the way that they phrased it is like data informed. Lots of people have been talking about data and driven and, and their pivot was really to this data informed. And so the data guides, shapes, educates on the decision, but it doesn't make the decision because we should know that that's, that doesn't work. Like this, there's, there's a long time ago story from Google where they produced this score and they were going to rank people on promotion based on the score. The math was all right, but the managers refused to use it because the decision about who gets promoted is too important, is too, the accountability on that is too high to delegate to a piece of technology. So, you know, there's places where prescription works, known problem, known outcome, bingo, automate, no problem. But there's so much nuance in, in other decisions around people that, you know, it's more about ranking who should be focused on. And then if we focus on them, what are the options available to us? So you're guiding the person to something better as opposed to taking control away. Um, and I think that's a really yeah. important distinction. Absolutely love it. And unsurprisingly, Ian, uh, I feel that we could talk for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> uh, we do probably have five, 10 more minutes and there's a couple more questions I, I wanna ask you. Uh, number one um, is, what you like to do in your spare time. Um, but we'll get to that after this question, if you don't mind me helping prioritize. It's as we in people analytics and really the future of work, because it's about how work gets done and employee experience, inclusion, these things that we talked about. But what what are your hopes for, you know, where we're heading over the next you know, few years? Um, you know, what, what would you like to see happen? And what, maybe embedded in that, you know, what are some of your concerns as well? What do you hope doesn't happen? So my, my overall drive and the optimism that sustains my energy on a daily basis is this drive towards a more balanced view of work. I, I'm, I'm not in the camp of like employees should have more power and business should have less or business should have more and employees should have less. I try not to look at the interaction of work as a, you know, them versus us or us versus them we've been moving and continue to move towards what I call co-creation where there's an interplay and recognition on each side. There's like, there's stuff I need done. There's stuff I can do. How do we get better at managing that ongoing relationship with adult, adult choices on each side? So I see progress there. I can see it slipping back. I can see progress, but again, where we are compared to where we were when my father was working, you know, massive leaps forward i i think that some of that is going to stick around and um that i appreciate because there's i've always been struck and I still i'm struck by how much people have to give if you can only let them and, and most of the time organizations control systems get in the way and if we can recognize that you know enabling people to give how they wish to give just is totally win-win and it can build an excellent business so lots of lots in there and, and and i'm certainly not suggesting we're anywhere close to that nirvana but we have a lot more of it than we ever did uh celebrate progress the thing that i think my current concern and i think it's likely happening is the the kind of crash back to the office um unraveling some of the needs to work intentionally and be more 
conscious about how we work intentionally, just just sort of falling away because we all just fall back into the, you know, going to the office is easy. Well, if I don't go to the office, I'm not going to get promoted. If I don't go to the office, uh, my you know, what's going to happen? What's going to not happen? My boss won't like me. And, and that eroding some of the choice that has been available for you know, certain working populations that maybe found it easier to do hybrid versus the, the office. So always a bit of a yin and yang character. <laughs> I, I, would rather, <laughs> I would rather travel with optimism and be fully prepared for the downside. Uh, most people who work with me, they go, but you're so optimistic. And that yes, and I spend a lot of time worrying about the things that will go wrong. <laughs> well, that's, that's your job, and that's just prudent, you know, going back to systematic thinking. I mean, that's just, you know, you can just look at the good side, but if you don't look at the whole system, there's some risk there, and you see the risk, and I couldn't agree more. So, yeah, I am... I share your optimism. I also share, you know, your concerns. And, you know, particularly given that we are now in this age where we're creating very clear and ever clearer digital footprints on how we're spending our time and including where we're spending our time, you know, what is optimal for the organization relative to the individual? And how can that be, to your point, a conscious exchange as opposed to a battle? So that's just a super quick personal story. So I, I, I am intolerant to eat. I didn't know it at the time, but I used to work for myself and I would always not work in the afternoon. I would work intensely in the morning and work in the evening. I would just avoid the afternoon. When I went into a nine to five job, I would have a sandwich for lunch. I would be semi asleep for the two hours after lunch as, as an effect of wheat. And it used to drive me crazy that this business trapped my time so that they paid me for two hours of the worst time in the day. It's like, why are you paying me for such bad time? I can't help myself. I, again, I didn't know it was a medical condition at the time, but like you are paying me for the worst time in the day. If you let me go and ride my bike, I would be so much more productive for you. Wow. Because and, and, and I, I had the, you know, the option to work for myself and then I worked in, in you know, time-bound salary. It was like that experience was really tangible because like, you're just paying me for my worst time. This seems daft. <laughs> It's and it's on the other side of the coin. It you know here we are. If that reality is present, not only in stories that you just shared, but also in the data, why perpetuate you know these legacy norms that aren't serving the organization or the individual? Yeah, no, exactly. You know, and and question. I think that's the right balance. Al, it's not just not serving the individual; it's not serving the business either. Right. Right. Well. Last thing, you mentioned bike riding. Uh, I know you do some cross-country skiing as well up there in uh, Whistler, Vancouver area. How do you spend your, your free time, your fun time? So my, my fun so I have a family. I have two sons just in their early teens. And uh, so, you know, spending time with them is always a, 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 something I relish, something I enjoy. And then uh, I stay fit and I stay sort of balanced by riding a bike from sort of spring through to fall and then uh, cross-country skiing or backcountry skiing through the through the winter. The the reason to live in Vancouver and enjoy the rain is because it's cold enough for it to be snow on the hills. And if I was to do anything on a day, it would be to go skiing. I just, I am uh, as passionate about snow and skiing as I am people on all this. Wow, that's, that's good to know. Well, I'm going to have to visit you up there. How long have you been there in Vancouver? It's going to be 18 years this year. So, 
Wow. That's a good run. It's a good that's run. A, yeah. It's a good, yeah. it's a good city to live in. Well, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's mad, and I cannot wait to get back up there and uh, see you and the team. And so thank you for sharing. Thank you for doing what you do and how you do it and what you've uh, you contributed to the space and what you've built there at Vizier. I mean, it's really amazing. So, you know, thank you. Uh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Al. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about today's guests, go to pafal.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafal community member. You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pafal, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends and coworkers and others who might find it valuable. Uh, finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at pafal.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn, follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. We're active as can be, and we want to provide this content to you that is timely, relevant, and actionable. So again, thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon. I also want to give a shout out to Jenna Dern, Malaz El-Sheikh, and Sarah Sparnan, who without them, this show would not happen. And now go out and make some great things happen.